This is a special edition of Dolphin Financial Radio. In this podcast, host Dan Wendell brings in a legal expert to discuss issues surrounding estate planning in retirement. As a fiduciary and investment advisor focused on retirement planning, Dan appreciates the importance of having certain legal aspects of your financial life in order. This is why he has invited Debbie Faulkner to join him on a series of estate planning focused podcasts. Debbie is an estate planning business attorney and owner of Burke Faulkner Law Firm in Oldsmar, Florida. She grew up in Palm Harbor, Florida, and has been a lawyer for over a decade. Debbie went to Cornell Law School and obtained her advanced law degree in taxation with a focus on family wealth planning. As a tax lawyer, she is able to integrate tax planning into her estate work. Now, let's begin one of several estate planning-focused conversations on Dolphin Financial Radio. Hello and welcome to another Dolphin Financial Radio with me, Dan Wendell, owner of the Dolphin Financial Group. Today we have a special show. This is going to be our first show where we ask lawyer questions or ask a lawyer tough questions about estate planning. But in reality, this is the first of um, several that we're going to do over the the course of the year. So we're going to start off easy, not only to keep keep it easy for Debbie, but also to keep it real because I know a lot of listeners out there have just basic questions that they want answers to. So Debbie, thanks for coming. Thanks for doing this. This is going to be fun. And um, and listeners, if you want to connect with us, with Debbie, um, there'll be notes and uh, links in the show notes to find out how to connect with us. You can always call. And if you have a question that you want asked about a legal question that you want an answer to on the next show, just email us and we'll try and fit it in the next time we do a show together. So Debbie, thanks for coming. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Excellent. Um, tell me. Um, you, so we, we we heard in the intro that you've been doing this. You focus on estate planning. You're local. Uh, I'm going to play um, the typical person that comes to me, and I have questions, legal questions. So I'm just going to ask you these, and you kind of give us the answer and tell me what you think. So the first, the first thing people come to me with when it comes to legal questions, a lot of my clients are a little older, so they're in their 50s, 60s. They say, um, do I need a will? Do I need a trust? And then they say, well, what is it? I heard on TV, I heard about a will, but I heard about a living will. Is that different? And I heard about a living trust. What is this? So tell me, what's the basics here? What's the differences? Absolutely. So first and foremost, a will and a trust are both mechanisms or ways that you can pass your property, your wealth, which is called an estate, down to the next generation. A trust is often thought of as something that is solely for the wealthy, but that's simply not true. A trust and a will are both, at their core, a set of instructions that tell the executor or the trustee what you would like to happen to your property after you die. A trust also advises a trustee or the person that was equivalent to an executor how you would like your money spent on yourself if you become permanently disabled, like you have dementia or Alzheimer's one day in the future. A living will is not the same thing. A, a, living, a living will is the what I call the Terry Schiavo document. A living will tells a physician or a hospital what you would like to happen to you if you are in a persistent vegetative state or if you have an end-stage condition or a terminal condition that two certifying physicians tell you you are unlikely to ever recover from. 
So that is what a living will is. A living trust, on the other hand, is a is the set of instructions that you, what you'd like to happen to your property in the event that you die or become disabled. Okay, so Terry Schiavo, that was Florida. That was a long time ago. Yes. Um, but that, that was a crazy case. I remember that. Um, so now the idea being, uh, if you're living and you can't act on your own, and there's probably some sort of requirements to meet to get that, a living will will provide directives. How is that different than like a healthcare proxy or is it the same thing? Oh, it's it's a different document. So a healthcare proxy, also known as a designation of healthcare surrogate, and in some states it's referred to as a healthcare power of attorney, tells the physicians and that are treating you who you would like to make a healthcare choice for you if you're incapacitated, like you're, for example, under anesthesia. And a surgeon sees something they want to operate on, but it's not in your prior consent. They can talk to your healthcare proxy or your healthcare designee. A living will is is just used if you're in a persistent vegetative state, or you have a terminal or NCH condition, and you two physicians have indicated you're never going to recover. That document basically says, please don't treat me with any new conditions, because under the Hippocratic oath that doctors take, if you don't have that, they have to treat anything new, uh, and and basically continue to provide treatment no matter what. A living will is really a gift to your family. So if you're in one of those situations, they don't have to make a really difficult decision about whether to quote unquote pull the plug or leave you uh, continuing to be treated. Would a healthcare proxy or healthcare POA allow them to make that same decision or do you need a living will? A healthcare proxy typically allows you allows the proxy to make that decision for you. Um, but it the living will kind of tells your healthcare proxy what your wishes actually are so that they don't have to make that decision on your behalf. Uh, It kind of leaves a lot to the conscience of the individual you name. So it's really a gift to that person. Okay. So let's stay on the living. So we're not dead yet, but (laughs) we want to make some decisions on, on what happens to our health if we can't make those decisions or maybe even our finances if we can't sign our name or something like that. So what do, does a healthcare proxy, is that different than a traditional power of attorney? Is it have to be, if I just have a power of attorney on my mom, does that mean I can make all decisions for her without her consent? Like, you know what I'm saying? Or does it have to be a healthcare decision, power of attorney? So there are two different powers of attorney. So the healthcare proxy or in Florida designation of healthcare surrogate is completely different than your financial power of attorney. Your healthcare individual can also be different than your financial power of attorney. And oftentimes it is because typically clients will have one child who's really great in the medical slash personal realm and one child who may be great with finances, but wouldn't be uncomfortable making a healthcare choice. So typically I, I see often clients name different healthcare proxies than financial power of attorney. Interesting. I guess you could say, you know, oh, this, this, this one's going to have trouble pulling the plug where this one wouldn't. That's my right. Kid wouldn't, so let's, right. <laughs> or one child's a nurse and one, one person is an executive at a company. Things like that happen often where one child is involved in the medical field and one child is not, or the other children are not. What if they don't have this? What if someone doesn't have any sort of power of attorney or healthcare surrogate or durable medical power of attorney? Um, 
doesn't the spouse get first right to do all this anyway? The spouse does not have the automatic right to act on your own behalf. You're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding. It's it's not automatic. Uh, and if you think about it, it shouldn't be automatic because there are all different people who stay married to people who maybe they don't like or don't want to be with anymore. <laughs> and uh, perhaps, That's for another show. <laughs> perhaps their spouse is estranged. And that is not a position that a physician's office would like to be in is determining whether the spouse is on good terms with the other one. So in order to receive protected healthcare information under HIPAA, you have to have a person named to receive that information. So when you execute a power of attorney, well, healthcare power of attorney or healthcare proxy, you also execute a HIPAA release that says that the physician's office is able to release all of your protected information. Hence, we don't have to worry about being in the Terry Shivo situation where we had two different, I think it was two different people wanted to do two different strategies with her. That's exactly right. And there was a big battle. So she was around for 15 years on, on life support and her husband wanted to have her passive natural causes without uh, medical intervention any further. And her parents believed that she may eventually become out of a vegetative state. And so that went all the way to the Supreme court. Absolutely crazy. Could have been avoided. Could have been avoided with one simple document, the living will. Do you see a lot of people have this or do most people do not have this type of document? Well, if they're coming to you, they're probably... Well, if they're coming to me, they typically are having it done now. But about 70% of the population does not have a will, trust, or estate plan in place. That's pretty staggering. It's a staggering statistic. Anecdotally, I would say that most... I would say a majority of the clients that I have, the people that come to me for the first time, do not have these documents. Exactly. And they're asking me about it. And that's why we're talking today. Because I think... Having these things is critical, and that's a very prime example. Now let's move to, um, let's move to the when you pass away. Um, we talked about a will, living will, and a living trust. First of all, what does intestate mean? Does that mean dying without a will? Is that what that means? Yes. So. so a lot of people that die, if you die without a will, the government dictates who gets your money. So the federal government, state government? State government. So, so the Florida, state of Florida would dictate if I died and didn't have a will, my wife doesn't get everything automatically? Well, it depends. So under Florida law, there's a statute that provides who gets your property if you don't have a will. If you are married at the time that you die and all of your children are in common. That means you're n- you're not, neither spouse has children outside of the marriage and all children that may exist belong to the couple together. Then all of your property would pass to your spouse. If you're on a second marriage or you have children outside of, a, of the marriage, either person, then only half of the uh, property would go to your surviving spouse and the remainder to any children that you may have. Mm. things like that. And it goes on and on and on. There's about 14 different levels. (laughs) So if you, if, if you have a standard single spouse, children with that spouse, could you get away with not having a will? Yes. In theory you could. Then the lone lost child comes out of the woodwork and throws it up. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It just complicates matters a little bit, but it is possible to just, I mean, the reason that the law exists in the way that it does is because it, it governs or takes care of the traditional family situation. But as you know, Dan, there are fewer and fewer quote unquote traditional families. I'd say that's definitely the minority. And I will also say that most families, the traditional families included, 
there's always going to be problems anyway, fighting. And so that's right. Having some directives, having some things written down really helps. Goes a long way. Absolutely. And, you know, even in a quote unquote traditional situation, there can be inadvertent consequences. I recently had a client who, uh, well, the client was the surviving daughter, but a man passed away in a car accident unexpectedly. He was in his 40s and left two children. The issue is that he hadn't spoken to one of his children in 15 years and his daughter and him were extremely close. But under the law, since he was unmarried at the time of death, his estate passed evenly to both children. Certainly not what he intended. Right. And the sister and the, and the daughter was probably upset because. Very upset. Then, But she had no recourse? Well, in this particular instance, I suggested to her that we ask the estranged son to waive all of his rights to the estate. <laughs> and we were actually successful in obtaining his consent and, and waiving his rights, but that's very atypical. Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. So um, probate, is that probate? Like, So the probate is a fancy legal word that I dislike greatly because who knows what probate is anyway. <laughs> that's why we're asking. Uh, exactly. And truthfully, I didn't even learn the word probate in my first law, law school program. So it's not uncommon to not understand the word, but it really just means wills and trust court. Will's court, essentially. It's where all wills go after somebody dies. So in, in essence, probate is the will's court process. And if any property passes through a will, it goes to the probate court. And the court supervises your executor, which is called a personal representative in Florida. It basically supervises the process of moving your property from you down to the next generation. Okay, if you don't have a will, does it go to probate? Automatically probated, yes. Okay, so to avoid probate, you need a will? You need a trust. Okay. So a will does not avoid probate. So if, for example, I have um, I have a will and I do not have a trust, all of my property is in my name when I die, Debbie Faulkner, then all of the property that is owned by me at the moment I die is included in a petition to the probate court or the wills court. And it basically says my will provides that my property goes to these folks, you know, and then we request that the court appoint the personal representative or the executor. They have to post a bond with the court. And then it goes through like a nine to 12 month process of moving my property from my name to the individual's name to my will. The, there are two ways to avoid probate. The first and the one I recommend is having a trust. So a trust is just, is really, like I said earlier, not for the wealthy. It's just a mechanism of passing your property down the line without having a court involved in that process. A trust is just similar to a will in the sense that it, it says, I, I am giving my property to my three children equally. And then Basically, the person that you name to take care of your trust is called a trustee, and that person is responsible for taking care of your directions, but that person doesn't have to post a bond with the court. The court isn't involved. It's a completely private proceeding between you, your trustee, and your family. So you can name the trust as the beneficiary of all your assets, even within a will? Would you have a will and a trust? You do, when you have a trust, it's not an independent document like a will. You you must have a will with it. But unlike a traditional will that says, I want my property to go to my kids equally, when you have a trust, your will says, I want all my property to go to my trust. 
Okay. So basically it's called a pour over will. And you can think of it like the water being dumped into a jar. All the property that's outside of your trust when you die is like the water that goes into your trust when you die. But I would say that the best, one of the reasons for having a trust is to avoid probate. If you leave all of your property in your individual name, like all my property when I die is under Debbie Faulkner, my pour over will will put it in the trust when I die, but then I have a probate proceeding first and then a trust proceeding after. Okay, so the the will, um, if you have a will that lists the trust, then you avoid probate. No, actually, that's a very great question because that's most commonly what I see happen is that if a client does have a trust and a pour over will that says everything goes to trust when they die, there's a common perception that that automatically funds the trust. But I want you to think about trust more like a bank account. When you go to a bank and you open an account, you sign a legal document that nobody reads, including lawyers, and then you you have a legal document between you and the bank that says how the relationship goes. What happens to that that contract, essentially, if you never put a, a dime in the bank account? It's still a legal contract, but there's nothing for that contract to govern. It's the same thing with a trust. So if you just have a trust document and you never fund the trust or put anything inside of it, it really just stands alone as something that takes place after you die. So really the key is putting your money into that trust. And that's the part that gets a little bit confusing. So, but I want you to think about it like a bank account. If you go to the bank and you put, you know, you put your money inside that account. Now the contract has something to govern all the money in the bank account. But can you put anything in that trust? Can you put a vehicle? You can put anything in that trust except your IRAs, 401ks, and other qualified plan assets. Those have to be beneficiary designated into the trust. But for example, this is where people get a little bit hung up. How do I put something inside a trust, inside a legal piece of paper? But it's the same thing, you know, with your identity as an individual. I, you know, have a social security number. You have a social security number. If if you go down to you know, local bank number one, and you open an account, you give them your name, your ID, and your social. A trust has its own identity. So if I want my bank account in my trust name, I bring a certificate of trust, which is like the trust's identity paperwork that your lawyer draws up. And then I give them, you know, my license as a trustee. And then they open the account instead of Debbie Faulkner, they put Debbie Faulkner trustee of the Debbie Faulkner trust. Now that account is governed by that same set of instructions. So if I have a piece of like a home, for example, instead of saying Debbie Faulkner's home, it says Debbie Faulkner trustee of the Debbie Faulkner trust owns that home. And that's exactly how my estate is set up now because I have, I have, I just bought a home and I put it in the name of my trust. What this, this essentially does is it puts the world on notice that I have this legal set of instructions that govern my property. One thing that often I get asked about it is, well, doesn't that make it more complicated for me to sell my property or do anything with my property? The short answer is no, it's not more complicated. It's just a matter of showing that the trust exists and it has its identity. And then I'm able to do whatever I can with my property as an individual. I can do with my property as a trustee of my own trust. 
Perhaps the only extra complication would be when you sign, you have to sign as a trustee as opposed to just your name, or you might have to present the trust document somewhere. That's exactly right. But you do that once and you're set. That's right. And the good thing is once you put your accounts in the name of your trust or you beneficiary designate them to the trust, it's very, very simple to change your entire plan. So let's say you stop talking to one of your children, which is actually much more common than people think. You can just change your trust one, you know, with one simple page, one or two page document and cut that child out of all of your assets because all the assets are now in one essentially box, which is the trust box. So I'm, I'm staying on this idea of a trust. Um, who really needs it? Like, cause a lot of times people think trust are for the really wealthy. You already said that's not. But are people getting a trust when they don't need it, when a simple will would do, or you know, someone that doesn't have a lot of assets? Do they really need a trust? Great question. So there are really you know, a few different situations where I recommend a trust unequivocally no matter what. First is if you have real property, which is basically houses or buildings or land in more than one state. Because if you have real estate in more than one state, then there would be two probate proceedings. So if I left, if I had a vacation home, for example, in North Carolina, and then I owned my home here, if I just died with them in my own name, I would have to hire a probate attorney in North Carolina and a probate attorney in Florida to handle my estate, which gets very expensive. Mm. And also I should mention in Florida, because attorneys make up the legislature, it is required that you hire a lawyer to go through the probate process, which lawyers are entitled to 3% of your entire estate by law, and they can charge more in about 15 different scenarios. So I just wanna make that as a side note, that attorneys have written themselves into the law that if you own more than $75,000 in total, then you must your your family must hire a lawyer to help them get the assets. So there's some monetary savings to be had by having do avoiding probate. Well, there's definitely monetary savings. And this is also, Dan, why some attorneys out there will give you a free will if you do other services with them, because they know that in 30 years or 50 years when you die, that family is coming back to them and all of your estate, they're going to get 3%. So on every hundred thousand, they're getting $3,000 to help your family out with the estate. But it's a little bit of a tricky way of lawyers writing themselves into your trust. They could avoid it by writing a trust as opposed to the will. That's right. Got it. Okay. And now speaking of that, you've, I'm sure you've seen, they have software where you can write your own will, will maker software. I see on the shelves at like office Depot. Is that, I mean, uh, that's for wills. Not, I don't know if they have trust software, but um, have you ever seen anyone use that? come to you in probate situation where they said, I had this, I thought I did it right. Yes. So oftentimes I've, I've actually seen quite a few um, wills done on legal zoom and also yeah, wills, wills done on a software made at home. The most common thing that happens with these wills, it's not that they necessarily don't have the right language is that they're not signed properly. So Florida law sets forth basically execution requirements it sounds so so uh, dark but uh, signing requirements that if they're not met then the will essentially gets thrown in the trash so if you do the will wrong and you don't sign it exactly correctly then the will gets tossed out altogether the judge does not read your will and follow your wishes at all so if you do sign a will incorrectly or make a will that 
does not have legal effect. None of your wishes will, will govern, the law will govern. But I want to go back to your other question about whether you need a trust or a will, because it's very important also. So I, I mentioned the two home scenario mm-hmm. as one reason why you'd have a trust. Property in two different states. That's right. The There's other a couple of other reasons. Um, one is if you have beneficiaries that you want to treat differently or you want to govern how your money is spent after death. You essentially want, you know, that power to dictate from the grave how the money goes. So if you have, if you're giving, you know, away a significant amount of money or you have children and maybe one of them spends everything that they may, that they get their hands on or they have a spouse you don't like or maybe you have a child with special needs that, that you may want to provide for, a trust is really the only way that you can dictate from the grave. And so if you also have a kid with special needs, that's also a, a 100% you need a trust because you don't want them to be kicked off of a public benefit that they may be receiving for their disability. And if they've received a large inheritance, sometimes that affects public benefit, but you can protect all of that in a trust. The other thing, I know there's a lot of reasons here, but is if you, so we, at my firm anyway, we credit or protect all the assets from your beneficiaries, creditors. So if I put money in my own trust, I can't protect it from my own creditors. That's often a misconception I hear about trusts. Um, unless and a creditor would be, hey, you know, you have a bill or you get sued or you something like that. You get sued for a car accident or something. If it's in your own trust and you still have control over your trust, that doesn't provide asset protection, so to speak, for you. Mm-hmm. But let's say I, I want my money to go to three kids and one of them gets in a car wreck the week before I die. You know, I can make sure that my the inheritance I leave for my child goes to my child and skips over any lawsuit. Even if the, the person that sues my child wins, I can credit or protect all their inheritance from that lawsuit and from their spouse. So from creditors or predators, I like to say. And that's a good question. That's a good point. I didn't <laughs> even think of that. So um, I want to wrap up this discussion because I think next time I want to talk more specifically about naming beneficiaries and how that imp- impacts wills and trusts. But last question, um, I don't know if it's something that we just see on TV a lot, but do people actually contest wills? Do you see that often? People contest wills and trusts all the time. There's an entire field of lawyers called probate litigators that all they deal with is will and trust contests. Because if if you don't already know, money adversely affects a lot of people and causes people to be a little bit greedy. And some people are just grieving and they lose control over, they don't have any control over a death, so they try to take control of property to hold on to somebody that they love. And it may not be for greed, it just is how they're coping with the death. It happens all the time. Well, I appreciate you spending some time talking about wills and trusts and the basics today. we're going to step it up in the next show and get a little bit more detailed. But if listeners have any questions, they can contact us. Uh, go to dolphinfinancialgroup.com or you can go and listen to this podcast. You can contact Debbie. Her website is www.burkefalconerlaw.com. Excellent. And you're right in Oldsmar, so we're local. So if you have any questions, give us a call. Otherwise, Debbie, thanks for coming in today, and I look forward to our next show. Likewise. Thanks, Dan. The topics on this show are wide-ranging yet relevant to people approaching or living in retirement, like me. If there is a topic you want to hear on the show, head to dolphinfinancialgroup.com and contact Dan to request your topic or 
to share your opinion. Dan Mundell or Dolphin Financial Group are not affiliated or endorsed by Social Security or any government agency. Everything discussed on today's show was for informational purpose only. Since everyone's situation is different, some things may not apply to you. The materials presented are believed to be from reliable sources. We cannot be 100% certain that they are accurate. You should really talk to my dad or someone from Dolphin Financial Group before trying to implement these ideas or strategies.